Friends, good morning to you. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us, we uh, are delighted to have you. We hope that you feel welcome worshiping with our church family. Uh, and it's a joy to be able to worship together. You find us uh, towards the end of a series called Return. We're in Nehemiah 5 this morning, and we have a problem on our hands. Last week, we saw Nehemiah deal with external threats to the rebuilding of the wall. He has his enemies. But this week, Nehemiah has to deal with internal threats. He has to deal with his own people. Nehemiah is absolutely between a rock and a hard place. He's trapped between his enemies on the outside and a people that are tearing themselves apart on the inside. There's issues at work among the people that is absolutely threatening to shut down this entire rebuilding project. So, something must be done to make sure the work continues. Now, as you heard Tim read the passage to you this morning, did you pick up on how toxic the situation is among the people? They're a mess. And everything is falling apart. So here's my question for you. What do you think the solution is? What's the only solution to all of these challenges and to unite the people so that the work of God can be accomplished? What do you think the solution is? Well, to understand the solution, we have to understand the problem. And for starters, there's a famine in the land. And in the ancient world, that's when things go bad. Because in the ancient times, ancient economies were agrarian economies. And so whenever famine happened, well, that meant recession, inflation, and economic hardship. And so in verse 1, this famine produces challenges among the people. And there's an outcry. It says there's an outcry of the people and of their wives. And that language for great outcry... That's Exodus language. That's language that is reserved for when Israel cried out to God in their bondage in Egypt. This is the language of oppression. But who is this outcry against? It's against other Jews. It's against their own flesh and blood. And this outcry comes from three sets of people. The first is from the women. The women are crying out for help because all the men are actually in Jerusalem rebuilding the wall. If you remember, they work all day. They sleep in the city at night to protect it. So the women are having to pull double duty. They have to care for the home and for the family, but they also have to work out in the fields. But there's little crop, which means little money, and they are desperate to feed their families. But that's just the beginning. Because there's others who've had to mortgage their lands and their vineyards and their houses just to get money to buy food. Can you imagine being in that desperate of a situation where you have to borrow money against your house just to put food on the table? But then you don't have the money to pay back that note because there's few crops, which means little income. Then you have a third group. You have a third group that had to borrow money and mortgage their properties just to pay 
property taxes. The Persian Empire was notorious for laying brutal property taxes upon their subjects in the upwards of 50%. Not to mention all of the local taxes that local authorities and officials would place upon them as well. So these people had to mortgage their land, their vineyards, and sell everything that they had just to pay these taxes. But then whenever the famine hits, they have no money and they have no assets to leverage to help feed their families. So the only option they have left is the worst reality of this situation. is that they have to sell their own children into debt slavery. Did you ever sell your child? Did you ever see yourself being in a situation so desperate that you would sell your son or your daughter? Do you see how toxic this situation is? Do you see how it's destroying the people? Do you see why there is an outcry? And who is happy to buy their children? Is it Egyptians? Is it Persians? No, it's Israelites. Their own flesh and blood. Who's happy to take their lands, their vineyards, and their inheritance? It's other Israelites. The wealthy Israelites were taking advantage of the poor Israelites and crushing them with heavy burdens, taking everything they have to line their own pockets, using their brother's misfortune to build a fortune. Their oppressors are no longer foreign armies or foreign entities or foreign kings. It's their own, it's their own family. It's their own people. It's their own flesh and blood. So sure, last week everything on the outside looked great. The people have rallied to rebuild the wall and restore the city. But on the inside they're rotting and they are destroying one another. The very fabric of the people is being ripped apart by greed. Which means that the purpose of God to rebuild this city and dwell with his people is being completely undermined. Because where's the hope? Who wants to build a city where you'll only live as a slave? And when Nehemiah hears about all of this, he's angry. He's very angry. A righteous anger burns within him. Finally, somebody that's angry about it. Finally, somebody that cares. This is the leader that Israel needed, someone to get angry over the very things that make God angry, someone to drive out the money changers, someone who cared about what was sacred and precious to God. So what's Nehemiah do? He calls them all out. He calls all of the nobles and the officials together, and he holds an assembly. And he does two things. He charges them according to the letter of the law, and he charges them according to the heart of the law. So he addresses the letter of the law first just because it's the most obvious, and he says, what you're doing is wrong. You're charging interest on your own brother, and it's wrong because according to the law, that was completely forbidden. The law allowed for Jews to make loans to one another in times of need, and those loans had to be paid back. What couldn't happen, what they couldn't do, was charge interest. God didn't allow for one Jew to profit off of the difficulties of another. Why? Well, because God didn't want Jews going around seeing dollar signs every time they saw a brother in need. 
And the wealthy Israelites knew full well that this was forbidden, but they did it anyways. They were looking out for number one, looking out for their own interests and building a fortune on the broken backs of their own people. And Nehemiah just calls them out for what it is in verse 8. He says, we have fought for freedom for all of these years and all of these centuries just for you to buy and sell your own people. You're slavers. You're traffickers. You're acting like power brokers, not brothers of one another. And they didn't have a word to say. It says they all fell silent. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He's just getting started, really, because now he gets down to the real issue. He says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Why does he say that? He says that because they haven't just betrayed their own people. They've betrayed their God. He's charging them with betraying and transgressing the very heart of the law that God gave them. Because the laws that God gave to Israel are more than just a list of rules. It's more than just do this and don't do that. There's a heart, there's a spirit behind these laws that governed God's people. Because if you go back to the book of Exodus, whenever God rescues Israel, and the first time he gives them the law, what's the first thing he says? What's the, how does he introduce this law to them? The first thing he says is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. I am the God who redeemed you. So the implication is that God is saying before you hear any of these laws, remember who I am, remember what I have done for you. Remember how I rescued you from Egypt. Remember how I heard your cries. I saw you in your suffering and out of my kindness, my generosity and my grace and my love for you, I redeemed you. So it's at the heart of this law is actually loving relationship. It's not just a list of rules. So what that means is that these laws were given so that Israel would reflect the character of God. That the laws that governed them would reflect the character of God towards one another and among the life of the people. They were to teach Israel how to live in a way that reflected God's kindness, his benevolence, and his love for the people. And this is why, in the end, you can summarize all of the law with love of God and love of neighbor. This was their guiding principle. That was the principle that filled and infected every law among the people. Because that's the foundation upon which God built his people, was his love for them. And the call to exhibit his love towards one another. And remembering the heart of the law is important. For them, the same way it is for us. Because God didn't provide laws for every single situation that they were going to encounter in life. There are situations that would arise in difficulties and circumstances where there was uncertainty. They wouldn't necessarily know what to do. They wouldn't necessarily know how to proceed. So the heart of the law is important because the people would remember what is truly at stake. They would remember the true heart of the law and they would learn to ask, how can I love my neighbor the way God loves my neighbor? How can I express 
the heart of God for them. So, of course, in light of everything that the leaders are doing, Nehemiah asks this question. Should not the fear of God be in you? Not only have you betrayed your brother, you've betrayed your God. The very people that he set free, you put back in chains. And that's why Nehemiah brings up the taunt of the nations the way that he does. How can they claim any moral superiority? How can they claim God's favor when they do the same things as the nations? How can they expect to be blessed like Israelites when they live like Persians? They're slavers and traffickers, and Nehemiah says we're hypocrites. Because when God gave Israel the law, it wasn't just for them. It was also for the world. God told them, he said, I am going to make you a kingdom of priests so that you will be a light to the nations, so that you would be a blessing to the world. And what do priests do? They lead people to God. And so all of Israel together was to be a kingdom of priests that led the nations to God and revealed his character to the world. So when Nehemiah steps back and looks at this problem, he doesn't just see a problem of economics. He's addressing their complete disregard for the mission of God and how everything they are doing is undermining it. Because what's the point of building a city and restoring a city where God promises to dwell with his people when they show zero interest in dwelling with that God in the first place? And why would anybody else want to either? They've undermined everything that God would have for them. Let's just put this in modern-day terms for a second. Imagine you're new here. And maybe you are new here. But imagine you're new. You get on the website. You like what you see. So then you come to a service. You like what you experience. And then you jump into a community group, and you like who you meet. And you're like, this is a, I like this church a lot. I love their outreach, missions, things like that. I think I could call this place home. But then you learn that some of the elders here are investors and owners of payday loan centers. Or then you learn that our deacons, they like to send out benevolence checks, do it all the time. But those benevolence checks are really benevolence loans expected to be paid back at 15% interest. Or you learn that RPC likes to trim off 20% of everything that comes in for India. You know, just to keep the lights on. Now, would you still want to go here? Would you still want to be a part of this church? Hopefully not. Hopefully you'd be long gone. And why would anybody else want to either? The thing is, is that all of that is completely legal. And yet doesn't it completely betray the people that we are called to be? Now, I can assure you that none of those things are actually happening, in case you are new here. <laughs> and this is the exact situation that Nehemiah finds himself. It was true for him. This was going on among the people. And he says, you have completely undermined the very reason for why you exist. So what's the solution? What's the only solution to this toxic situation? How can Nehemiah unify the people 
so that the purposes of God can be accomplished and brought to completion. What's the solution? It's generosity. It's abundant, divine, life-changing, radical generosity. And Nehemiah calls them to do something that nobody expected because nobody was thinking about the heart of the law. He calls them to exhibit a radical generosity at their own expense. Because he says, abandon all of this and give back all of the vineyards, all of the land, all of their homes, and all of their inheritance. And give back all of the interest, all of the money, all of the wine, all of the grain, all of the oil, all of it. Give it all back. Give it all back and hear the cries of your people. See your brother in his need and be like your God and redeem them. Give all of it back. That's the only way that this work can be accomplished. And that's radical generosity. Especially when you compare it to what Nehemiah could have said. Because what he could have said is just simply, well, just give back all the interest. Keep your loans out because that's legal according to the law. But just give back the interest and make it right. He could have very easily just told them to do just enough to get back inside the boundaries of the law. But he doesn't. He calls them to something more. He calls them to something divine. He calls them to radical generosity. He calls them to lay hold of the heart of the law to show a love for their neighbor that displays God's love for them to redeem the people and release them from their burdens, to see the power that they possess for goodness and for good and to put the redeeming character of God on full display in the kingdom and to the world. He calls them to a radical generosity to restore hope to the people and to use that generosity to drive the mission of God forward. And this is the exact leader that Israel needed. One who saw the needs of the people and understood the power and the purpose of generosity. And that's who Nehemiah was. Now this moment changed Nehemiah. He becomes a different kind of leader after hearing and learning of all of this. Because if you notice in verse 10, he mentions how he too had made loans up to that point. And the context seems to suggest he wasn't doing it at interest, but because of the need, he also was making loans. But it's in this situation, in this moment, that things changed for him. Because he realized that the people needed far more than loans. The people needed a generosity rooted in the fear of God and what he has done for them in order for the people to have any chance or hope of accomplishing the purposes that God had for them. And so what's he do? How does this change him? Well, in verses 14 to 19, he lists out everything that he did in response. And he lists out his ongoing commitment to the people. And he says the first thing is that as the governor, he was given a food allowance each and every day by the Persian Empire. But he never used it on himself. He gave it to the people. He didn't impose any taxes on the people. 
because so many governors that came before him had laid such heavy burdens on them, and he wanted to give them rest under his leadership. He didn't acquire land to enrich his he didn't acquire land to enrich his own portfolio to build up his own fortune and his own wealth, but he kept all of that with the people where it belonged. But then look at this. He says that every day he fed 150 men at his own table. Each day at his own expense, he provided one cow, six sheep, and the best food. I read that and I think that's two briskets and 26 beef ribs a day. (laughs) That is extraordinary generosity. But also notice how Nehemiah didn't just do this for a little while. Didn't do it for a couple days, a couple months. Nehemiah did that for 12 years at his own expense. That's 4,300 cows, 26,000 sheep, and 657,000 men. That is radical generosity. So what are we learning about Nehemiah and all of this? Well, if we read between the lines, he's telling us how he bankrupted himself. When he saw the people in their suffering, when he saw the people in their need, at some point he realized the leader that Israel needed him to be would leave him penniless and poor. But he gave it all anyway. He gave everything he had. Why? It was for the fear of God so that the purposes of God for his people might come to fruition. This was the leader that Israel needed. One who saw the generosity of God at the heart of God's people. One who saw how generosity would drive the mission of God forward so that the people might become who they were called to be. So, what are we to do with all this? What's this mean for you? What's this mean for us? Well, the low-hanging fruit goes something like this. Well, do you see how much Nehemiah gave? Are you giving like Nehemiah? Are you generous like he is? And, of course, the guilt train would come through town. And that might put a couple of bricks on the wall. That might even build you a brand new church building. But it doesn't mean that you are actually participating in the mission of God. Because it completely misses the deeper point. So what does all of this really teach us? It teaches us that in order for us to fully participate in the purposes of God and to become the people that we are called to be, someone has to bankrupt themselves on our behalf. Someone has to bankrupt themselves for you. And Nehemiah makes this request at the end of this passage. He says, remember me for my good, oh my God, and all that I've done for this people. Now, is he just listing out his record of wins or being arrogant? No. Here he is at the end of his life, reflecting on everything that he's done, on all that he did and tried to accomplish, and he's entrusting himself to the Lord. He's saying, remember what I have done for these people and let it not be in vain. Remember my generosity so that your purposes might be complete. 
So does God actually remember a bankrupt Nehemiah? Yes, he does. And he remembers him in the most extraordinary way possible. He remembers him in the person and work of Jesus. Because Nehemiah's story points forward to someone else that would come and bankrupt himself for the good of his people. One who would give everything he had so that we might fully participate in the mission of God and his work in this world. It points forward to how the gospel is a bankruptcy story. Because you and I had a real debt before God. A debt sometimes we forget. It's a debt that you and I could never pay in 10,000 lifetimes, and we were enslaved to a power that we could never overcome. And what was the only solution? What was the only solution to fix that toxic problem? It was divine, abundant, life-changing, radical generosity. It was a God who saw us in our need and did not take from us, but he gave to us what was most precious to him. A father who exhibits such generosity that he would bankrupt himself of his own son. And a son who would exhibit such generosity that he would take on flesh. He would leave behind power and glory that you and I could never possibly comprehend so that he could come and empty himself and become a servant of all. Jesus sees us in our bondage, saw us in our suffering, saw us in our inability, saw us in death when we could do nothing to help ourselves, and he bankrupted himself for our good. For yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Came not as a broker, but as a brother, someone who entered our suffering and gave up everything he had. And it's at the cross, when he's penniless and poor, that he gave the final thing that he had left to give. He gives his life. He pours himself out as a drink offering so that you might be filled, so that you might be redeemed, and you might have and be given all things. You know what that means? It means go out tonight and look at the night sky and imagine the vastness of this universe. The next time you're in front of mountains, take a good look. The next time you're sitting on a beach and enjoying its beauty, take it in because all of that is yours. He withholds no good thing from you. All that he has, all that he has been given, he gives to you. You have no clue how wealthy you are. You have no clue how much you have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Radical generosity. His bankruptcy is our blessing so that we might know the full promises and purposes of God and we might participate in them. This morning, I want you to see how generosity is at the heart of the gospel. Because it's generosity that drove Christ into this world. It's generosity that drove Christ into your world. And it's generosity that sends us into the world to exhibit and reveal the generosity of our God to the world. I want you to see how generosity drives the mission of God forward in this world, in a world that just wants to take, that generosity exhibits something otherworldly that the world so desperately longs for. Generosity is at the heart of the gospel. It's the engine that drives it forward into this world because generosity is powerful, 
Why? Because generosity gives hope. Generosity gives hope because it reveals that there really is a God at work in this world who is generous beyond measure. There really is a God who sees us in our suffering, who sees us in our need. There really is a God that is willing to give everything that is required so that we might be set free and we might have new life. There really is a God who says, I see you and I commit myself to your good. And it's that generosity that we are called to take to the world. A generosity that says to the world, you are not alone. Your suffering is seen. Your outcry is heard. And we commit ourselves to your good in the same way that Christ has committed himself to ours. Generosity gives hope that there is really a God who's really doing something in the reality of this world. And generosity gives hope. Hope that the story can change. Hope that redemption is real. Do you see the hope that comes from generosity? I hope you do. And we have certainly seen it. But I want to make sure we all see it together. Let's bring this closer to home. Think about it this way. What if I told you that we reached our goal this week and we hit $40,000 for India? Great news, right? Amen. But then what if I said, we also found out this week that the G brothers are actually investors in the rock quarry in Raja? What if they had a little deal worked out with the owners that they got a little kickback for providing rice to keep the workers content, busting rocks? What if we found out that the spots in the Raja children's home were only open to the highest bidders among the poor? Or what if we found out that Smriti had a deal with the traffickers in the Kaliga to help identify and build trust with the young girls that would make them so much money in the trade? Just the thought of that makes my skin crawl. Makes my stomach churn. Because wouldn't it undermine everything? Wouldn't it be so devastating? All this time we thought that God would be using us for his purposes just to find out in the end it's no different than the way the rest of the world operates. It would be so defeating because it would rob us of the very hope that we want to give to the world, which is that there is a God rich in generosity who's actually doing something in this world. It would make us feel hopeless. And we would feel like a punchline, open to the taunts of the surrounding world that says, see, no different than the rest of us. How crushing that would be. Do you see the hope that's attached to generosity? Because what happens when you take all of that generosity away? Now, the good news is that none of those things are true. In fact, since I've known them, the G brothers have emptied so much of their own personal wealth, just like Nehemiah, to make sure the mission of God goes out in their time and in their place. And the other good news is that we did hit 40000 this week and then some. $41,485. And do you know the hope that is attached and comes with that generosity? The hope that will be given to 4,000 people 
in the form of a 10-pound bag of rice, the hope that will be given to them as they cry out in their destitution. Do you know the hope that comes that they know that they're going to be okay? The hope that comes from knowing their kids are going to eat. The hope that comes from knowing that there is a generous God who has come to them in Jesus Christ. And instead of being taunted, that kind of generosity taunts back. It taunts back to the principalities and the powers of this broken world and all the corrupt systems in it and says, where are your gods? Where's your Shivas? Where's your Vankateshvaras, your Hanumans, and your Kalis? Where is their power and their strength and their provision in your time of need? They bankrupt you. Yet behold the power of a God who bankrupts himself for you. Behold the God who meets you in your needs. Behold the God who fills the widow's hands with food. Behold the God who gives clean water to the worker. Behold the God that gives a future to, the, to your children. Behold the God that unites two churches across oceans that otherwise have no reason to know that each other exists apart from God in all of his generosity breaking into both of their stories. It's generosity that reveals to this world that there is a God who's generous beyond measure that is at work in it. And might we as a church see the power of generosity and how it drives the mission of God forward in this world. Might we be jealous for the name of Christ, joyful in generosity for our good and his glory. Because it's generosity and the generosity of Christ that drove us into our surrounding neighborhood to pass out 900 invitations to a Thanksgiving meal. Because generosity says, there is a place for you. It's for generosity that drives us into Mobile City. Generosity to befriend our neighbors and to show the love of Christ without expecting anything in return from them. Why? So that the mission of God might be complete in their community. It was for generosity that someone said, really, you're coming here? It was for generosity that an agnostic woman said, so what's next? Are we going to do this again? Are you going to come back? And it was for generosity that our deacons have already had an opportunity to help a family that fell on such hard and desperate times even since we first met them. And three times that person has come back to Kenny's house saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because there is gratitude when someone hears the way that generosity says, you are not forgotten and you will not be swallowed up. And did you hear last week the power and hope of generosity when Missy Camp shared? You could probably barely hear it in her tears. How much it meant to her to have families stumbling over themselves just to bring them dinner as she battles cancer. And why? I'm pretty sure Eric and Missy can afford dinner. But generosity says you don't have to. Generosity says I am with you. Generosity says, I see you. It says you're not alone because there is a God who is with us. It's generosity that reveals that there is a God who is generous beyond measure that is actually doing something in this world and in us. And a picture is worth a thousand words. And there's one I'd like to show you as we close. This picture is taken this week in the deep forest as the G brothers were distributing food. See that woman in blue? 
See how behind that scarf, do you see that smile? Do you see that hope? And remember that out of frame of that picture is death, devastation, sorrow, and sadness that you and I have never seen on a scale that is beyond our ability to understand. And yet you see that smile, a smile that shines bright, like a light to the world that says there really is a God that brings healing to the nations. Behold the power and hope of generosity. RPC, my prayer is that we would be blessed beyond measure so that we might be a blessing for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.